so thankful to be here today, and I'm so thankful to be with my family, with my church family. I want you to know that this is a place for you to belong and become everything God has created you to be. Um, In addition to that, though, the vision of this church is to follow Jesus, to embody the message of of love, embody that in everything that we do from, from this moment today to tomorrow morning to Thursday night to Saturday morning. We want to embody the love of Jesus uh, in every way that we can, but also we want to continue to radiate that message of hope, that message of hope that that there is uh, life, that there is life found in Jesus Christ, and, and that it's okay that we don't have it all together. You've heard me say this probably more times than you want to hear this, but I often say that it's okay to not be okay. And I so some of you have come up to me and said, thank you for saying that, but others Maybe you're still sitting in a place where you go, I don't feel that it's okay to not be okay because I'd rather rather not admit that. And unfortunately, we've entered into places of faith, faith communities, not necessarily churches, but just into a faith community, whether it's a school or some other kind of environment. And we felt like we had to be a certain way, that we've had to measure up to some kind of standard. We had to look a certain way and talk a certain way and feel a certain way. And, and, and I'm sorry if you've ever felt that way in that kind of environment. Because what we need more than anything else, I believe, is, a, is to create a space. And I believe that we're trying to do that here at Grace, is to create a space where People can be their most authentic self, especially when it's messy, especially when it's difficult and you feel empty and you feel hopeless, especially in those moments. You know, last week I I had the opportunity to help us pause in the middle of the service to pray for a local pastor in Chino who had attempted to take his life. And at the time that we were praying for this miracle that somehow he would be able to pull through, I found out later that day that he did not. And I was informed of his passing. And many of you may have heard more details to that. Um, His name was Pastor Andrew Steckline. This is his family. It's a picture they posted on their their Facebook wall uh, with his three boys and, um, and I don't know if we have that, yeah, it, 30 years old, three young boys. And I'll tell you this, look, this wrecked me. This wrecked me this week. I, I have, uh, I have, I didn't know him personally, but I know a lot of people who do know him and actually have a family member that goes there to his church and was baptized by him recently. And I, I, uh, I was um, reeling from, from the messages of people reaching out to his family and, and to Kayla's wife and to the church community and to the city. And I, I was struggling with this question of why, this question of how, how could this happen? And maybe you were wondering the same thing. Maybe, maybe I, I, I'm sure those that were closest to him were all wondering the same thing. And because of this, I, I, I've, I was diving deeply into uh, anxiety and depression studies and articles in an attempt to understand how and why. And, 
And, and I'm no expert, and I realize that, and I know that, and I, I hope you know that, that I am no expert, and I, we have plenty in this room who are experts in that. I'm not here to, to talk about, from an expert standpoint, what we should do, how we should approach this. However, I'm here to share what God has been teaching me through learning and sitting in a posture of learning and how God has been guiding me and teaching me some things in my search for answers and and more information. And I'm also here today because I think I represent many of the people in this room who truly do not know what to do when this sort of tragedy occurs. My hope today with you all is to offer some sense of encouragement in spite of a pretty weighty topic that seems pretty prevalent today. And I I wanted to share with you some statistics that, and they're not, it's not exhaustive, but I want to share with you some stats uh, that I was just covering in my time educating myself. Some of these statistics are from the World Health Organization, others from National Institution of Mental Health. And uh, according to the World Health Organization, uh, it says that over 300 million people worldwide say that depression is the leading cause of ill health and disability. The National Institute of Mental Health reports that 7% of Americans experience a major depressive episode in a year. That's approximately 16.2 million people in America. The median age of depression, it's onset, 32.5. The prevalence of adults with a major depressive episode is highest among individuals between the ages of 18 and 25 years old. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among people ages 15 to 29. About 30% of American adults who are diagnosed with, the, with depression receive no treatment. 37%. It's even higher for teenagers, about 60% for them. 20% of all teens experience depression before adulthood. And this is the last one. In 2020, depression will be the main cause, the number one cause of disability worldwide. Now, in my time researching and reading, I came across article after article dealing with teenage anxiety and depression and and suicide. And it was, it was, it was absolutely devastating to me. It was, it was wrecking my mind and my heart. And I, I watched several documentaries leaving me just hurting and and, and saddened for those who are struggling with the deep, deep discouragement and and pain. And I'm sorry if I have ever lightly addressed anything that might be somewhat close to that in your life. And I apologize for any faith community who has not recognized this as a normal thing. You know, just in the past month, I, I, uh, I know of six people locally, who have succumbed to the weight of their anxiety and depression and have chosen to end their life, spanning from the ages of elementary to adulthood. It was about seven years ago when my 
One of my family members of mine had chosen the same fate, and our family is still dealing with that weight. And what I realize probably more now than ever is, is that in a space of faith, a faith community, we have very few conversations about that struggle, that struggle of emptiness, the struggle of, of despair that people live with that can be described as despair or sometimes and oftentimes clinically described as depression. And again, I'm not here to speak to, to you as, a, as an expert, but, but hopefully as a friend, as a friend who wants to learn. Since coming to faith, I, I've heard very little discussed in this topic. And I think Grace has done a pretty good job of, oper- of providing opportunities and providing space through therapy, through therapists and people that we've had come up here. Pastor Chris has spoken about it. Dr. Zan Suzuki and Carol Montgomery have all spoken about this topic. But I think in the faith community, we have not talked about this enough. And that's what I'm learning And I'm not here to go shame on you or any of that stuff. No way. I'm here to say, how can I be a part of helping this? And so today is just one small opportunity for me to add my voice into recognizing the fact that this stuff happens not only for those that are outside of faith communities, but within the faith community with people who know God and love God and want to follow him desperately and are still struggling with that. What I find interesting is as I explore God's word, as we explore God's word, is that many people of faith in scripture were not free of this type of struggle or this type of pain or this type of emptiness. In fact, when you read the Bible very carefully, you will discover that the people of God that chose, he chose to use not only had high moments of this valor and bravery and honor, but very low moments of sadness and despair. And the truth is that we all have had moments of discouragement. But for some of us, doing some small trick or changing our mindset or thinking that we just get closer to God or whatever it is that we might think would help these things, these feelings, this emotional pain go away. It seems like it's a very lazy kind of way to respond to it. For some people, it's just not, it's just not that simple. And this is why this passage of Scripture that we're going to unpack a little bit today um, has helped me a little bit to, again, normalize these feelings, this brokenness, this honest feeling of emotional pain that people are going through. And, uh, and I hope that it gives us a little bit of insight, a little bit of wisdom in how to respond to those who are experiencing some deep anguish and despair. So would you turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19? And we're going to be there. If you have a Bible, you can open there. If not, the, the, the words will be on the screen. And, and this is a story that you might be familiar with. But if if not, I just want you to listen, and this is, the, this is the posture that I want us to take, and I'm hoping and praying that we'll take. I want us to lean in with great intention, to hear the story that's going on. Not to read it as another verse, because we have to read these verses, or, but to really try to plant ourselves into this story. To put our perspective, to, to, to allow God to give us the perspective 
to see those who might be discouraged, and it might be you today. And so I'm hoping that we'll dive into this context. Can we do that? Can we have a little bit of a story time? Let's, let's, do, let's do that today. First Kings chapter 19, verse 1, it says this, and I'm going to give us some context, so let's, let's go. Ahab, it says, told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Okay, now, if you don't know the context, let me give you a, just a really, really quick synopsis. So Elijah is this prophet of God. He is the prophet. I mean, he is the prophet of the day. And there was this huge moment of confrontation that Elijah had with all these other false prophets of this false God. And so they have a little bit of a, a, a challenge of, let's see whose God is going to consume this altar. And whoever's God does that, that's the God that we need to worship. So they set this thing up and all of these prophets are dancing around and they're praying. These false prophets are cutting themselves and they're, they're you know, doing these things to their bodies in, in order to help try to kind of summon something, some response from the gods that they're following and nothing happens. And Elijah, now it's Elijah's turn and he gets in there and he brings these 12 stones and he puts the, the offering on the altar and he covers it with water and he drenches the whole place and he pull, builds these trenches around, covers that with water and he prays, God, let it be known that you are the one true God and I'm just your servant. And boom, right then and there, fire rains down and consumes the offering and all of the water that was poured onto it. And in that moment, everyone falls down on the ground, it says, that's the one. <laughs> okay, that's the God. And so Elijah has this moment in his life that would be considered the best moment in his life and stands up to some pretty overwhelming odds and has the biggest triumph in ministry that he's ever, ever experienced. And then it goes into this, verse two. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow, like the life of one of those prophets who died by tomorrow. Okay, now, you would think that, I mean, that Elijah, who just overcame literally the biggest odds of his life, he just watched God literally rain down fire from heaven onto this altar. And you would think that his response would be to Jezebel, like, please, come on, come on. Did you, not just, did you not hear what happened? Come on, you talking to me? Like, you're talking to us? Like, I, I would think that that would be his response, but that is not the way that he responds in verse three. Look at this. Then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there. So someone he was traveling with. But he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die. And he said, I have an, I've had enough. Lord, take my life for I am no better than my father's. Now, did, did you hear that? I, I want you to know that Elijah was not the only one and we're going to learn that he does feel like he's the only one. But he's not the only prophet that has wanted to die. 
Jonah wanted to die. Moses wanted to die. Job wanted to die. They all had moments where they wanted their life to end because they were on this, under this unspeakable amount of pressure and pain and despair. And Elijah was terribly, terribly discouraged. And it says this in verse five, then he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And suddenly an angel touched him. And the angel told him this, get up and eat. And then he looked, and there at his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. When we're in moments of discouragement, you know, oftentimes the first thing to go is our appetite. Nothing sounds good. And so he lays down, and an angel ministers to him and encourages him that you need to put some food in you. I think, how powerful has it been for someone to reach out to you and go, can I, can I get you some food? Can I take you somewhere? Can I help you get some rest? It goes on, verse seven. Then the angel of the Lord returned for a second time and touched him again, and he said, get up and eat or the journey will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. And then on the strength from that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. He entered a cave and there spent the night in a cave. Then the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And this is Elijah's response. I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, but the Israel, Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They've, they've torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, I alone am left. And, and, and they're looking for me to take my life. In other words, he's saying, have you not been paying attention, God? My life is a mess. Now, have you ever said those kinds of words to God. No, let me rephrase this. Have you ever felt like saying those kinds of words to God? Yes, yes. Verse 11, he, then he says, go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. And at that moment, the Lord passed by. And get this, a great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering the cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle or his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? I have been very zealous, he says, for the Lord God of hosts, he replied, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They tore down your altars and they killed your prophets with the sword because obviously you were listening to me the last time I said it and I alone am left and they're looking for me to take my life. My life is a disaster. I'm running for my life and I'd like for it to end. Can you help me? 
See, Elijah is like this. Here's his dilemma. He's running for his life because Jezebel and her people are trying to kill him. But he doesn't want them to kill him, but he still wants to die. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, go and return. By the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus, when you arrive, you are to anoint Haziel as king over Aram, and you are to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, as prophet in your place. Then Jehu will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Jehu. But I will leave 7,000 in Israel, every knee that has not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And Elijah left there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, and as he was plowing, 12 teams of oxen were in front of him, and he was in the 12th team, and Elijah walked by him, took his mantle, and threw it over him. Now, if you're still with me, (laughs) and you're asking, why in the world are we reading this passage? I, I want to say that the reason we are looking at this is because this was the moment where the prophet of Elijah, prophet Elijah, a pretty amazing guy, a pretty amazing prophet, a pretty amazing man of God, felt his deepest and most painful moment of despair and hopelessness. And I think it's pretty important to look at someone who we might admire, listen, who we might look to someone who's in Scripture, someone who followed God with a passion, someone who stands for bravery and for valor and for truth and was anointed by God himself. That he came to an end of himself and wanted God to end it all for him. I think sometimes we have this idea or this template for what it looks like to have a strong spiritual journey with God, as if we're never supposed to have bad days, as if we're never supposed to have bad weeks, as if we're never supposed to have bad years or decades, that we're never supposed to have any kind of moment like this, where we feel like we can't breathe, where we we feel so empty inside, like we feel so alone. And I don't think, again, that it needs to be said that I am not approaching this as someone who knows everything. If anything, I'm trying to learn more myself. But when I read this passage and when I'm asking God, how, what is it that we see in this? What is it that, God, you want to help communicate how normal this is? These are some of the things that I recognize in this passage. That Elijah was dealing with an overwhelming amount of anxiety. He was literally afraid of Jezebel. I mean, he just came off this victorious thing, this huge thing. And then Jezebel sends word and he runs. I see that he was also depressed. His words were, I have had enough. I can't take it anymore. I believe he was also paranoid. He ditched his servant and then ran into the wilderness for a day's journey. Who does that? Someone who's hurting someone who is in deep pain. And we also know that he was on the verge of ending his own life. His words were literally, Lord, take it now. Take my life. I don't know if you've ever felt like after 
some really, really high high in your life that it's been followed by this very low and empty place. Like there's no point in moving forward. How quickly you can go from that to a moment of hopelessness and despair. Elijah was one of the greatest prophets in, history, in the history of Israel. But we, he gets to a point where he's so low and so depressed and so empty inside, so paranoid and afraid that he wants it all to end. And I, what I find, what I love about Scripture, and if you haven't fell in love with this, mo, this one thing, I hope that you fall in love with it today. And it's this, that Scripture is super honest. It's transparent about the fact that lots of people who have followed God, powerful people, amazing people, have struggled with anxiety and depression, and they struggled with panic and paranoia and even thoughts of ending their own life. And I really have had a difficult time this week. As I was praying, God, in light of Pastor Drew's death, I, I pondered what he was going through. I thought about his wife, Kayla, and her three sons. Like, what are they going through? I'm watching and reading posts on Instagram and on their Facebook, and I am just broken. I am hurting. I'm saddened. I'm going, I don't know what to do. I don't even know what to say. God, what do you want me to do? Is it, do we talk about this? I told you that one of my cousins was attending his church and about a year ago he was baptized. I went to his, I was just scrolling through the Inland Hills uh, Instagram page and I saw my cousin on, on the Instagram page and I'm like, what? And I reached out to him and I said, I, cousin, I don't, I don't know what to say. Just know that I love you and just know that I care and I'm here for you. See, it's a natural human thing to want to answer questions like this of how and why this could happen. But that's the mystery of tragedy, isn't it? It's the mystery of grief, that there, grief that there's, there are no quick responses or answers or easy ones at that. So if there is something that I could say to all of you here that might be struggling with some of these things, it would, be, it would be two things. After reading through this passage and, and, and really trying to take on the mindset of what Elijah was going through, it's this, that you're not alone. And I don't mean that in a surfacey way. I mean truthfully and honestly that people have walked this path that you, you're not alone and that others share your pain. Other people... Godly men and women of faith know what it's like to deal with this pain that you're experiencing. And what I found being in this place that I am in right now is that solidarity is sometimes the only thing that we have to do to encourage people is, is to know that we're not alone in this human experience, this normal, normal human experience. To know that you're not alone, to know that other people have felt your pain, to know that other people can actually empathize with your struggles and that there are other people in this room even today who might be a step, one step maybe, or maybe two steps ahead of you on a road to healing. That kind of solidarity breathes life back into our soul. And so as I was praying, going, God, I want to do the right thing. I don't know what to do. And he said, I just want you to be who I've made you to be. 
You don't have to have it all together either, dude. He didn't say dude, but I mean, that's my interpretation. He said, I want you to be like you. I want you to be who it is that I made you to be. And he gave me a word. And he said, I want you to be an encourager. That's all I want you to do. In everything that you do, I want you to be an encourager. See, the truth is he's called all of us to do that. Now, some of us might be better at it than others, but we certainly all could be better at it, especially to those around us who knees are trembling under the weight of this kind of discouragement. And so I thought I'd, I kind of end in a different way. I, I don't, this is not the way that I typically prepare or do a message. Um, but I'm going to invite the, the band back forward as I, I want to end. And we're, we have some things I want to share with you. Um, I've been learning and I'm trying to learn more. And I want to share some thoughts of what I'm committing to this season what I'm committing my life to, to be more of an encourager. Since I'm not a professional, I'd like to share what I'm committed to doing. And I have four things. And then secondly, I want to be able to speak to those that might be dealing with some kind of heavy, heavy level of discouragement. Whether whether it's not heavy or not, I, I want to speak to those that might be in that season right now. So these are the things I'm committed to do, four things. First one, I want to be less like Dr. Phil and more like Ellen. And I know that's kind of, kind of weird. You're like, well, that's weird. Um, I know, because I'm kind of weird. But I, I, I'm not a doctor. I'm just a friend. And I want others to I know that I care. And that's it. That's it. That I'm here. If you want, I will give you a hug. Because I want you to know that I care about you. That I am a friend. I don't have answers. But I, I'm here. And I want to be here for you and that you matter to me. Secondly, I want to be a listener, be more of a listener and less of a fixer. It's not my responsibility to fix anyone. And I have felt that way. I mean, it's, it's in some of our DNA to want to fix everything. But human beings aren't objects. You know, they can't be glued or taped or sewn back together. They are beautifully designed, intricate, and delicate works of art that only their creator can heal. So I'm not going to try to fix them. I'm also committing myself to continue to create a space where it's okay to not be okay. And I'm going to declare that everywhere I go. If you know me and you sat with me and you've been in a group setting with me, I have said this more times than you have ever cared to hear it. Because I believe that we need to make it more okay to not be okay. And for it to be more okay that I'm okay with your not okayness. Do you follow me? Lastly, I, I want to speak value back into people's lives. When we are discouraged, the belief in our value is at risk. And, and like all of us around us, unfortunately, those lies can creep into our life and into our mind and into our heart and soul. And I want to counter those lies and remind you of your worth. Not only to me, not only my value, the value that you have to me, but to your family and to your friends around you and to your creator who loves you so much. So those are the four things that I'm committed to. 
But secondly, I'd like to share some things, some words with those who might be going through a difficult season, a difficult time. And I don't care if it's, if, 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 what it might be. I want you to know that it, that is normal. And that there are other people who share that. And you're not alone. I said that already. But here's the things that I want to share. I want you to know that we care about you. Here at Grace Church, we care about you. And that you're important to us. And that we, I want you to know that we may never understand your pain. But we want to learn. And so we're going to sit in a posture of learning. A posture of listening. And I want you to know that you aren't weak. In fact, I think you're incredibly strong. And lastly, I want you to know that there is a true and real and tangible hope in Jesus Christ. And I'm sorry if you ever felt out of place in a faith community and I, I, like you somehow had to mask what's going on uh, in a place like this. And I love this place and this place is amazing. And I have been my most authentic self here with you today. And not only today, but other times. Because grace is, that is our DNA. And we're trying. And we're trying to be better. But I'm sorry if you've ever felt that way at some other place or even maybe even here. That you've had to mask what's going on inside of you because you, you, you put up some template. You put up some, like, this is the facade because I have to have it together. I want you to know that you belong here with all of your mess. And that you are welcomed here. And that you are loved here. And that you are valuable here. And we're going to be patient with you and learn from you. See, oftentimes when I'm discouraged, when I'm struggling, I allow the wrong voice to lead me astray. I, 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 to back down to the unhealthy path. Like Elijah, the voice was Jezebel that led him astray. That led him running in fear. And for me, it's been the voice of my past. For some of you, it's the voice of your present. And we've allowed that to influence us and change us and to tell us absolute lies that we're not worth it, that we have no value, that you're not important, that nobody cares, and that you need to isolate yourself and separate yourself because you're different. And that is not true. That is not true. Oh, please hear this. God has a deep passionate love that goes farther than you could ever imagine, deeper than I even can even understand it. It's more unlimited than the limited words that I'm sharing with you today. And then I want you to know that we're here to combat the lies, the Jezebels in your life, the voices that have you, you've lived with for so long, that, that reoccur or that are constant that sprout up in your life or that are always there. And we're here to combat that, to remind you that there is a voice that Jesus is calling, that Jesus is saying that there is hope for you, my son and my daughter. There is hope for you in this place. There's healing. There's life. Real life. 